Song number 261 was announced, and we certainly appreciate not only the presence of each and every one, but certainly the participation as well. The singing is so spirited, so engaging, and so lovely. As well as that, the opportunity to enjoy Christian conversation and communication. Indeed, God has been so, so very good to each of us, hasn't He? As you know, during our particular reading through the Word of God this year, we have advanced in the Old Testament having completed 2 Samuel to the major set of writings that David put before us, which encompasses many of the Psalms. And so currently we are finding ourselves reading a number of the particular Psalms. And Psalm 11 tonight will be the focus of our attention for, for the next little bit this evening. I might suggest that by way of some introductory thoughts, 37% of the totality of the sacred text you and I have read and as we have found ourselves in the book of Psalms, we immediately perhaps remember it is the longest book in all of the Bible, both by way of enumeration, by virtue of number of chapters, by virtue of number of verses, by virtue of number of words. It is the longest. However, we ought not by that become overwhelmed in, let's say, drudgery because the Psalms are so unique. The chapters in many senses are brief, and I would ask you to notice some of these brief comments. The individual psalms that one might quickly mention, many of them, they seem to have a powerful uniqueness. Some of them address great decisions in life. Some of them address the matter of worship. Others address circumstances relative to depression or hard times. And haven't we all been there at one time or another? Arguably, it seems to me fair to say that Psalms covers the entire span. Everything from apathy to zeal, A to Z, and everything in between is found somewhere addressed in the marvelous annals of the book of Psalms. I would suggest that as we simply focus on a brief one tonight, Psalm 11, we'll just scratch the surface of what's found in the entirety of this marvelous Old Testament book. You'll notice one final statement on that particular slide. There have been those who have actually made a determination of dividing the Psalms, all 150 of them, into various categories. Some of them relating to worship, others relating to great problems or decisions in life, others invested in the subject of prayer. Rather than taking an approach like that one, I believe it would be a bit better for us tonight simply to take Psalm 11 as it's presented to us attempt as nearly as we can to appreciate what is said in it and make application to your life and to mine. As we seek to do that, perhaps Psalm 11 is such that it was just read in our hearing a moment ago. To further embed it in our thought before we begin some more detailed considerations, let's read it again. Psalm chapter 11. In the Lord put I my trust... How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For lo, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privately shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven, His eyes behold, His eyelids try the children of men." The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and in horrible tempest this shall be the portion of their cup. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness, 
His countenance doth behold the upright. Indeed, there is much that rings with such majesty in the statements that you and I just read. But with it, let's begin to organize our thoughts perhaps as follows. I've tried to divide them at least into considerations, and I'd invite you to note the particulars with me first. First of all, there are many of the 150 psalms for which enough is said in the psalm to identify for us the circumstances, namely, who wrote it and what may have been the issues of his life in which it was written. As we come to Psalm 11, our natural questions are the same. Do we know who wrote it? And if so, are we aware of what may have prompted the writing? In this instance, may I ask you to notice that in the superscription of the psalm, it is attributed to David. Now please take note with me, those superscriptions are not inspired. Don't take every one of them as if it is an absolute declaration from the Holy Spirit. However, I would suggest a number of features tend to powerfully suggest that David was the author on this occasion. In fact, if you'd like to notice Psalm 72, verse number 20, we have a statement that may well be a strong guide as we look at the majority of these psalms over the next week or so in our reading. Psalm 72, verse number 20. That particular verse is the closing verse to Psalm 72, and it says, "...the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended." Seemingly, that is one major division of the book of Psalms, and it attributes the first 72 of the psalms directly, it would appear, to David. Be that as it may, we appreciate the circumstances revealed to us also easily can be attached to the life of David in one form or another. I would be quick to say, though, that there isn't enough in these 11 verses to pinpoint, even if it was David, exactly what station in life it was. And we'll discuss that more thoroughly and more fully in just a moment. May I suggest to you the main message, however, of Psalm 11 is clear. It's the opening pronouncement. In the Lord put I my trust. If we remember nothing else perhaps about Psalm 11 concerning the nature of its proclamation, perhaps that would be the finest element to embed in our heart and mind. In the Lord put I my trust. With that statement of brief introduction of particulars, consider with me what comes next. Bad advice. Bad advice. You and I so often turn our attention to good advice from other individuals, be they counselors, family members, teachers, or otherwise, and yet we find, head on if you please, in this psalm, a description of some poor advice. Look again at the first two verses with me, please. In the Lord put I my trust, how say ye to my soul? we will have an interest to know who's the you, who's the ye referenced in verse 1. For whoever that ye is, they gave David some advice. Flee to the mountains. They encouraged him to run and to flee, if you please. And then verse number 2, it says, For lo, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privately shoot at the upright in heart. These advisors, these counselors that were offering advice to David, in this instance, urged him to flee. Now immediately, many circumstances in his life may well come directly before us. You and I can remember many things as having just read 2 Samuel and 1 Samuel as well. 
Isn't it true that he fled from Saul for quite some period of time as Saul had an earnest desire to put David to death? David found himself often in flight simply as a preservation for his own life. Could it be that these words were uttered to him in some time relative to some station in that consideration? However, in 1 Samuel 24, we remember David there found himself in a cave. Saul and his men had come that close and they never found David. Could it be that maybe that very tempestuous time, or what about two chapters later when he was in the wilderness of Hekilah, and there, one more time, he was close enough to David to, in fact, take, take Saul's cruise of water. Perhaps in light of all of that, it's fair to say that these advisors, whatever the circumstance was, they felt as if the best course of action for David was to flee. For your personal safety, for the safeguarding of you as perhaps king or as a safeguarded individual of uprightness, it is best for you to flee. You'll notice that those comments lead me to say this. That seems to be the very circumstance in which verse 3 finds its meaning. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations be destroyed, if circumstances prevail such that the one who upholds uprightness, namely you, David, if you are lost, the empire might fall into anarchy. It might fall into a great deal of unrightful living before God. If the foundations be destroyed, what about those who do attempt righteousness? What about those members and citizens of the kingdom who do respect you as king as the rightful man put there by the God of heaven? You can see with me that their argument to David was basically this. David, you need to flee for your safety and the well-being of the empire. You might notice with me some of these thoughts and comments, however. I entitled that section, Bad Advice. Isn't it interesting? It seems as if that really was poor advice on this occasion. And David recognized it. He did not submit to it, but rather, as we shall see shortly, he understood the needfulness not to flee because of the suggestion and the interpretation in the mind of others. You might observe that last comment with me. This isn't the only time in the Word of God we have the record of some poor advice. And isn't it true that from time to time we still are faced with those who may give us some bad advice, bad counsel? Perhaps none comes to mind any sooner than that of Rehoboam in 1 Kings 12. You remember the setting with me so well. There Solomon had just died. Solomon had been the third king of Israel, and upon his death you would expect his son to take over as king. Rehoboam was Solomon's son. As he began his reign, immediately a crisis, if you will, came before him. I call it a crisis because, quite frankly, in many ways it was. The issue was this. In the days of Solomon, Solomon had taxed the citizens of the kingdom extremely. The tax rate had been enormously immense, so much so that the people wearied beneath the burden of the taxation. As Solomon died and as Rehoboam became the next king, the very first issue was this taxation rate. And in fact, the people came before Solomon and they said, can you at least relax the taxation a bit? As I put that in my own words, 1 Kings 12, beginning in verse 1. 
you may well remember that Rehoboam did the following. He first asked advice of those old men, those who had been the former counselors of Solomon, and he asked them, what do you think? What would you advise? Those older men said, Solomon taxed these people immensely. They will follow you with all the earnestness and with all of the direction of their heart if you will listen to them and if you will be honest with them. You may remember that Rehoboam listened to that advice, but he didn't like it. And so he turned and asked advice of somebody else, and he asked those that were his friends, those that were his own age, what would you advise me to do? Should I relax the taxation rate? Those young friends of his says, don't relax it. In fact, increase it. Sure enough, three days later when the people returned and Solomon gave them his answer, he put it in words like this, My little finger is going to be thicker than my father's loins. If you thought the taxation rate before was bad, you've seen nothing yet. At that point, ten of the tribes seceded. They were unwilling to put up with it. And therefore, the kingdom split. It was terrible advice that those young folks gave him, but yet Rehoboam followed it. Isn't it true, then, that one must be cautious and very careful about the nature of advice? So much so that the top of the next slide highlights for us that bad advice is something that easily must be resoundingly appreciated. Not followed, mind you, but understanding the nature of it in comparison to the statements of Scripture, and if that advice, though well-intentioned it might be, we need to have the wisdom, and we need to have the fortitude to reject it, and to follow, of course, that which is the bidding of God. No wonder 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, about the nature of good communication and those that would be more apt to provide us that advice that is good. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. It might well be that prepares us for point number three. David then found himself in a hard position. Here were these advisors urging him to flee, but David apparently felt in his own character that such was not the best advice. What was David to do? Was he to follow the advice, protect his own life perhaps, or was he to remain, to stay, and to do that which he felt would be in the best interest of following the things of God? I would advise you to note some of these comments. First, this really was apparently a position of danger. Did you note verse number 2? For lo, the wicked bend their bow. Whoever these individuals were that were ready to attack, they had bows and arrows ready. And of course, in that ancient day, there were those very skilled at using a bow and an arrow. They might well have taken David's life. Not only was it a position of danger, it was also a position of great decision. David had to choose... He couldn't flee and stay behind all at the same time. Which would he choose? He had been in many circumstances, no doubt, in which a decision was demanded. As he fled from Saul, while there at the cave of Engedi in 1 Samuel 24, while there in the wilderness of Achila in 1 Samuel 26, all of them. But might we be quick to say, in light of all of that, that here are some quotations that it seemed to me appropriate, that would be helpful to you and to me as well. 
The first is from an unknown author. When one bases his life on principle, 99% of his decisions are already made. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes you and I happen upon those matters in life in which a rather noteworthy decision is demanded. Isn't it true that, again, if one bases his or her life on those principles which have already been said and which have already been determined and accepted, then many of those decisions are so much easier to make. They've already been made, quite frankly, haven't they? No wonder the principles need to be said in our hearts early in life so that when the moments of decision come, we are already prepared. Look at another quotation from Kerry Russell. Sometimes it's the smallest decisions that can change your life forever. What would have happened had David made a different choice on this occasion? What would have happened had he chosen to flee as the advisor suggested? You and I perhaps don't know the answer to that in thoroughness, but might we appreciate based on verses 5 and following that, of course, no doubt some noteworthy differences would have taken place. It is with that in mind, let's close that slide by affirming by far the best counsel and advice in any circumstance. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua had affirmed that not far from the time of his own death in Joshua 24, 15. With that kind of advice, let's then charge forward to the next element in this psalm. What about some details concerning that decree in verse 3? If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? It may well be that that passage has been one that's been the subject of many a sermon. When it comes to community involvement, when it comes to national impetus or choices, it may well be that one certainly would be easy to consider. Placed back in its context, would you consider it like this with me? There is a recognized foundation for life, and this text in many ways asserts the same, doesn't it? Life is not intended by God to be founded upon something that's changeable and nebulous and unsettled, but rather by decree of the Almighty God of heaven. Life is to be founded on a certain and rather strong anchor. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? I realize I speak before a group of those reckoned as righteous. As you and I have, following the dictates of Scripture, turned our life over to Jesus Christ, we follow His teachings, we give our heart to His instructions, we proceed to do that which is His bidding. But in so doing, being reckoned in that way, consider the foundation of Christ and the foundation on which morality and ethics and life in any character must be based. If the foundation is shaky, if the foundation is loose, if it itself is unsettled, then isn't it true anything built thereon necessarily is weak? Anything built on it also has the same element of weakness as the foundation itself. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Some of the following comments I would invite you to consider. It's entirely possible for a nation or for an individual per se to found that which is his character and behavior on things like deceit, dishonesty, violence perhaps. Notice that if the foundations be destroyed, those are no strong foundation. 
They are a foundation that wages war against others. It does so by looking, if you please, beyond what, the, what God has revealed. Isn't it true that that statement follows? What a sad state it is if those kinds of things are preferred to the strong foundation to which the righteous would turn. That always, of course, begs of you and me to ask about every plank in the foundation of life. Are you and I pursuing all of them with every piece directed toward the things of godliness, that which righteousness would uphold? If we are, then we have a foundation that cannot be easily shaken, a foundation which is not easily movable. It is in a situation like that that Paul addressed the Corinthians and said, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. That singular character of strength leads to the matter of the nation. I suspect each of us appreciated that that fits in perfectly at this location. If a nation finds itself embedded in its identity and character in that which the righteous would not consider appropriate, then the question is, what can the righteous do? If we are surrounded by those in various places and we, being so far in the minority, find ourselves overwhelmed by those pursuing ungodliness and satisfied with it, notice that you and I have but one place to turn, and that is, of course, the repository of our faith in the Master. What can the righteous do? As you'll see with me in the next verse, there is much more, though, to be said. But may we notice that righteousness exalted the nation and sin is of reproach to any people, Proverbs 14, 34. It is at that point that the very next attitude, the very next matter seems to be directly before us. This issue of trust in God. Notice with me verse number 4. After immediately asking that question of verse 3, Foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? It is in response and in the matter concerning that point that this statement is found. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. No matter what transpires about the righteous, their faith is well considered in the stronghold of the hand of God. David, you can almost hear him say, If I flee, it indicates I do not trust God to take care of me, and I do not trust that the fortresses that He has made available to me are sufficient for my preservation. David, in essence, said the Lord is in His holy temple. He furthermore said in verse number 4 that the Lord's throne is in heaven. These who are attempting by their wickedness to pursue me and the other righteous, they themselves are well seen by God. He knows who they are. He knows what they're doing. And He knows well who His righteous are. Do you and I feel that comfortable? Are we confident and assured in our faith that we could respond in a, an appreciation like that? Keep in mind, here were some enemies that had it out for David, and yet he made affirmation of his trust. Verse number 1 was in the Lord. The Lord's throne is in heaven. As you and I think about a verse like that one, notice this trust in God and how often that seems to ring throughout the sacred scriptures. 
although the setting was rather different, in Habakkuk 2 verse 20, almost identical words are found. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. On that occasion, it was of course the days when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians were making ready for the onslaught that was to come upon Judah. Here again, God's people, the ones that were faithful, had an enemy staring them in the face. God's people were outnumbered. They had far fewer military pieces at their disposal. And yet here, God through the prophet Habakkuk warned them, the Lord is in His holy temple. Trust Him, believe Him, follow Him. Take, let Him take care of those matters that weigh upon your heart and mind. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Rather than you trying to speak and tell God what to do, why not be quiet and let Him tell you what to do? It seems as if that little piece of advice has often been a needful matter. Rather than the human family trying to tell God how to organize the church and how to organize worship, why not be quiet and let God tell us how to do it? Wouldn't that be the better advice? And so it was here in Psalm 11:4. The Lord is in His holy temple. No matter what transpires on the face of this planet, nations come and go. Men rise, they engage in battle and attack, and they do so often with the great loss of any number of lives. And yet the faithful must ever rely upon the trustworthiness of the God of heaven in whom they've put their trust. No wonder we read in Psalm 55 verse 22 about the safety and security that goes with the righteous. The Lord shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Do we believe that? If we do, then we like David could be happy to respond in the way he did. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. That confidence and that certainty and that assurance does lead us, though, to the verses that are yet to come in Psalm 11. As we close that one, might I ask you to notice its preparation for what now comes before us next. This statement that we've just made about this wonderful confidence in God is a confidence that is shared more than once in the writings of David. In Psalm 56, verse number 11, In the Lord have I put my trust. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. We find that quoted in part in Hebrews 13 in the message of the New Testament, where again we read, You and I should trust in the Lord in every regard and in every sense. No wonder Jesus Himself in Matthew 10 pointed out that the very hairs of your head are numbered and He pointed out that we ought to fear the one who can cast into hell and not man who has no power to cast into hell. No wonder then in light of a whole host of comments like them, they prepare us for point number six. Trials. You may have noted as Brother Colonel read it earlier and as... We also read it together just a moment ago. Verse number 5. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. David, it seems, with a strong element of certainty, said the Lord tries the righteous. And that word try means to test. God will permit His righteous to be tested. You and I then ought not expect from the moment we're baptized to just float through life and never to be tested, for it shall not be that way. God will permit your faith and mine a moment of trial, a moment of test. 
And just like David, may we with security and strength rely upon the proclamations of heaven itself for the correct and right procedure and answer. That kind of trial leads me to note some of these comments. We have often impressed ourselves with that thought throughout the Bible, haven't we? Who can forget about Job? A man reckoned as the righteous man of the East, Job 1 verses 1 to 3. So much so that he was in fact hailed as one looked up to even Satan himself, you may remember. Did not argue with Job's righteousness, he just argued with the reason for it. You and I might then ask the question, what about trials that come your way and mine? Amazingly, David didn't seem to throw fits at the reality of the trials. He was confident in his ability, with God's help, of course, to overwhelm them. That's a very interesting viewpoint, isn't it? More than once, you and I seemingly are in the midst of a society that doesn't like trials. We want luxurious ease, and we want there to be no threats in any way. However, if there's no threats, what about those passages in the New Testament that lead us to think about that very issue? In Romans 5, beginning in verse number 3, there those trials, those periods of testing lead to something good and productive. For upon a proper emergence, you and I are stronger. We have approval of God and that experience we have leads us to better be able to handle the trials next time. In James chapter 1, verses 2 to 5, one more time, James said, Count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. James even said it was a matter for rejoicing when you have properly emerged from a time of trial. May I suggest to you that David, on this occasion, found himself in a moment of trial difficulty. He made the decision to forego the advice of the counselors. May I suggest that that matter of trial brings us to... Point number seven. I'm sure we all noted in verses six and seven that the presentation seems to turn and to turn in a very dramatic fashion toward an exposition of the wicked. In a rather thunderous way, he said, Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone and an horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. That phrase, cup, occurs more than once in the Old Testament, and on most instances it seems to refer, at least in a fashion like this one, to a circumstance of a person's behavior. Think about the cup spoken of in Genesis 15, verse 16. The cup of the Amorites is full. Their iniquity had become full. Well, here, the cup of the wicked, did you notice what it contained? That's a cup that I'm sure none of us want any part of. It's a cup that involves snares, fire, brimstone, and what's more, a horrible tempest. He says that is the portion, that's the lot that they shall receive. David seemingly was making a reference to those who were shooting arrows, those enemies of the people of God, those who were enemies of His. And as he referred to them on this occasion, he made note in a very general fashion about the wicked in any age and isn't it sad to contemplate what they shall receive? He, that's God, verse number 6, shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone. That word snares, of course, identifies in a very figurative fashion a scenario like what you would use to capture an animal. 
If you were going out in the woods with an idea to capture some kind of non-trivially trivially small animal, you'd perhaps dig a pit, cover it up, put things on top that, of course, made it look nothing like a trap. There would be a snare there to capture the animal. You'll notice here that same word in the Hebrew is used on this occasion. He shall permit snares to come their way. May you and I never think that the wicked just have it all so nice. That's a concept that occurred more than once in the Psalms. Sometimes the wicked do appear to prosper. Sometimes they appear to have everything their way. We're reminded here that they have their due coming. It may not be in the next five minutes. It might not even be in the next year, but their due is coming. God will rain upon them snares. There will be pitfalls into which they shall find themselves entrapped. Furthermore, fire and brimstone is now mentioned. Apparently a reference to a final matter of disposition for those that remain in that state of wickedness. Fire and brimstone. Our mind races to Revelation 20. Where there the dragon, the beast, and all of those that are their followers find themselves engulfed in fire and brimstone. The end of them, of course, too horribly filled with anguish to think about for very long. Oh, how sad it is to be numbered with the wicked. It is with that in mind that these last comments come before us. It's kind of amazing to contemplate the distinction found in Psalm 11 in contrast to Psalm number 1. We've noted in this instance about the wicked and the final disposition in verse number 7, it changes to the righteous. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. You and I, and can't we be thankful we serve a righteous God, and He does love righteousness. That love for righteousness leads to this statement, His countenance doth behold the upright. His countenance, His face, if you please, is turned toward those that love righteousness. Righteousness comes about by doing God's will, Psalm 119, verse 172. That righteousness is cataloged in verses that number so very many. As we mentioned in Psalm 1 just a moment ago, in Psalm 11 we have seen the characteristic of the wicked versus the righteous. Listen to the way Psalm 1 presents that. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. In that psalm, it's righteous contrasted to ungodly. Whereas one perished, the other was looked upon with favor and blessed greatly by God. In Psalm 11, it's of course something very similar. You and I find then that the choice is limited to one of two. Are you and I reckoned amongst the righteous or are we reckoned amongst the ungodly? the ones that are the wicked. May it not be the latter. May we with wisdom not follow that advice which is poor, but to follow like David did those advices which are in fact from God. 
It is with those thoughts that we come to a summary slide, a closing admonition. Psalm 11, it does remind us of some difficult circumstances that might come our way in life. Hard decisions may be before us, but like we've learned, if the principles have been set, quite likely the decision will be easy. We have seen in particular that the Lord is in heaven. May we always not fail to trust in Him. May we always be those who trust Him no matter what, even if it were to cost us direly the characteristic of our life. It is true, isn't it, that Revelation 2.10 does say, Be thou faithful unto death. Not just to the matter of your own physical death, but even if it requires it. In the interest of faithfulness is the thrust of that Greek phrase, Be thou faithful unto death. We've looked tonight at Psalm 11. The question does come to both you and to me. Are you the righteous ones? Am I? Or are we numbered on that other side? That verse 6 says, "...shall receive fire and brimstone and scorching heat." The gospel plan of invitation. The gospel message that is rung with such power throughout the pages of the book of God is a message that asks for a response. Every time we sing an invitation song, we're responding. If you need to respond in, in a positive way but choose not to do so, you are saying, No, Lord, not now. Don't continue saying that, for it could become too late. It could be that tomorrow will not come for you and me. It could be that all the affairs of time may end tonight. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. The famous words of Proverbs 27.1. This very night, if you have never obeyed the sweet name of Jesus as your Savior, you've never been covered by those waters of baptism, you've never known what it was like to raise a new creature in Christ, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, let tonight be the evening. You can be called a Christian. Christ will add you to His body. You could be numbered amongst the righteous. And all these blessings of faith and confidence you can understand and know for yourself. You need to believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name as the only begotten Son of God, and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Upon so doing, live faithfully hand in hand with Him until death. If you stumble and fall in a public way, bringing disgrace upon you, the church, the name of Christ, as long as there's breath within you, there's opportunity to make that right. We'd be honored to pray with you, to pray for you and your forgiveness. And tonight, this hymn of encouragement has been selected. If we could be of assistance to you, don't delay, but why not come even now while together we stand and while we sing.